episode of Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Joe Schumacher. I'm joined by Jeremy Chang. Jeremy, good to see you again. How's it going? It's been a while. It's been a real long time. <laughs> this is a post-pandemic edition, question mark, uh, mid-pandemic edition, question mark. Um, we don't know where we are in the pandemic, but we are back in the Institute talking on microphones in the same room. It's a nice feeling. It's a little weird. Yeah, it's a little weird. weird. And I don't see you that much. Uh, I see you in the, the hallway occasionally. Um, but how's, how's everything going? How's science these days? Science is uh, it's rearing back up. We're, yeah. we're sort of gearing back up to do to some cool stuff. So, yeah, everything's going well. Great. Well, um, yeah, so we've, we've been on a bit of a hiatus for the, the last two years or so. We've had a couple episodes come out here and there. But... Uh, we're back in the swing of things, recording again, um, meeting lots of interesting people. Um, today, we have uh, one of the few returning guests we've actually had on the podcast. Um, coming back to South Florida, we're joined by Dr. Ed Boyden from MIT, um, toolmaker extraordinaire, creator of uh, many transformative technologies in the, the world of neuroscience um, to you know get some updates on what he's been working on and where some of his existing technologies have gone. Um, what are you looking forward to hearing about from Ed today? Uh, well, I'm kind of interested to hear about uh, where, where the, uh, how's, how's technology has matured. We, I mean, I think last time we talked a lot about expansion microscopy and that was sort of the new thing on the block, but uh, it seems like they have a lot of new developments and it's opening up new questions that we didn't weren't thinking about before. Yeah, and I think we're going to hear today about new technologies, ways of multiplexing the, uh, the collection of different signals from different, you know, biosensors, uh, in individual cells and that sort of thing. So I think it's going to be a really, uh, uh, really, uh, interesting episode and, um, can't wait to hear what he has to say. So, uh, uh, without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Boyden. Today we are joined by uh, Dr. Ed Boyden. He is the Y. Eva Tan Professor in Neurotechnology at MIT, an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. He's a professor in the MIT departments of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, Media Arts and Sciences, and Biological Engineering, and is an investigator at uh, MIT's McGovern Institute. So Dr. Boyden, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. So um, you're one of the few returning guests we've had on the show. I think the, the first returning guest was uh, Jeff Lichtman talking about, um, you know, imaging and connectomics and, and great stuff like that. Uh, last time we talked to you was in 2017 at the Symposium Conference here in West Palm Beach. Um, at the end of that uh, interview, you, you, you kind of outlined that looking forward, you were really interested in applying these technologies to understanding, you know, small organisms as like a computational unit, like really trying to understand them from the recording side, from the imaging side. Is that still kind of your goal looking forward in the future or how have things changed over the last couple of years? Yeah, so we have been trying to optimize and apply the tools to small animals. Um, we had an, a paper in eLife a couple of years ago where we optimized the expansion process for the worm Skelligans, which has only 302 neurons and um, a reasonably well-mapped connectome. And uh, we've also been um, getting more into behavior as well, you know, getting going behaviors that are interesting that um, small, uh, organisms with small brains can perform so that we can analyze them. And we've also been um, screening uh, indicators that work well in, in the small brains as well. So yeah, what um, I guess that year was the year we published our zebrafish brain expansion microscopy paper. And so um, 
yeah, we're trying to further t the technology, uh, but also, yeah, just in um, maybe over the last year or two, starting to really try to stitch together te the technology so that you could, for example, image a living organism and then take the very same organism and then apply the expansion process to that very same nervous system. So there's a lot of stuff to be figured out, but it's, uh, it's an exciting goal. Very cool. Um, I mean, you mentioned the last couple of years. So uh, the, the listeners know that this is like kind of our first episode back to recording the podcast since 2020 when, when the pandemic started. Have the last couple of years been uh, particularly impactful on your research? Is everything kind of like plugging ahead as normal or did you have to make any kind of adaptations in, in the research program to, um, you know, keep things on track? Yeah, so the shutdowns of lab activity started in, I think, March of 2020, if I recall. Yeah. And then um, we had uh, probably by August or so um, resumption of, of many activities, um, although socially distanced and um, under various restrictions. Um, but, but things were uh, partly up and running by then. Um, and then, of course, with um, vaccines and uh, maybe uh, changes in variants and so forth. Yeah, throughout 2021, things were kind of up to speed, I guess. And yeah. starting fall 2021 was when people started graduating again. I think a lot of people didn't want to graduate in the middle of shutdowns. What's the point of that? Graduating <coughs> on Zoom and stuff, yeah. So we've had about, yeah, about half a dozen grad students just finish up their PhD in recent months. And and uh, yeah, a lot of new people are joining as well. Is it good to be like back on the road, so to speak? I mean, you're, you're here visiting. Um, we haven't had it much in terms of in-person visits in a while um you know is the is the era of of zoom interviews coming to an end are people ready to get back like you know interacting in person that sort of thing do you think well certainly there's no substitute for in-person interaction i've been trying to go to conferences where i don't know anybody so for example i went to a gordon conference in los angeles on marine natural products where i knew mm -hmm. fairly few people in attendance there but you know, of course, a lot of the, the good stuff in biotech comes from the natural world, right? Penicillin and CRISPR and optogenetics are all natural molecules that people adapted for biomedical or biological technology purposes. So, yeah, it's, it's been great to meet people who, you know, uh, you know, I would not bump into in the hallway in my building or in a standard neuroscience conference. And Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's been fun to, to meet lots of new people. I mean, so this is a perfect segue because you mentioned, you know, marine natural products and this sort of thing. One thing that we didn't really talk about last time we had you on um, the podcast was, you know, um, the origin of optogenetics. So how that whole uh, technology started to emerge. We heard sort of snippets of like really interesting stories of conversations you were having early on in those days as a grad student, as a postdoc. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in r microbial opsins and you know, as a, as a method for manipulating neural activity and, you know, just to sort of like give people a little bit of perspective on how this transformational technology kind of came together. Sure. Yeah. So I was a first year grad student at Stanford and uh, I met a fellow student, Carl Dysroth, who was finishing the MD part of his training at the time. And um, yeah, we were both brainstorming about ways that you could control neural activity. And um, there were sort of two parts to the thinking. So one part was simply just going through all the laws of physics and trying to think about which forms of energy could be gotten to the brain. So we thought about magnetic beads. Could you apply a magnetic field and pull on an ion channel to open it? And so I did lots of calculations, trying to estimate how much force you would need. And at the time concluded, you would need you know, way too much force um, or much too large a magnetic field or much too large a bead to make it work. Um, 
And uh, uh, so, uh, I mean, to this day, people are still working on so-called bandito genetic tools. Um, and so maybe the, uh, there's a, a number of really great groups that are going after that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, you know, light seemed like the kind of thing that one could apply. Um, and yeah, I just started reading lots of papers and I stumbled across this paper um, from a group in Japan that uh, was um, about a specific haloidopsin, a specific light-driven chloride pump. And um, the reason that's interesting is because at the time, all the molecules that had been found to be light-driven ion pumps were halophilic archaeal ion pumps. That means they're from single-celled microbes that live in really salty water. Um, in particular, salt too high a concentration um, for a neuron to thrive in. And so that seemed mm -hmm. like a dead end. But this one paper um, in 2000 by Okuno and colleagues um, seemed to, or maybe it was 1999, I'm blanking on the date all of a sudden, um, seemed to fly in the face of all that. And they characterized a light-driven chloride pump that worked well at low chloride concentrations, like the kind you'd find in the mammalian brain. And so, uh, yeah, right away started emailing people who studied this pump and we started collecting clones of genes from people. And, and uh, yeah, that's when we started really searching for such molecules from colleagues. What are the, what's the main function of these molecules in these single cell organisms? I mean, certainly they don't have uh, neurons or, you know, nervous systems where, where they want to be modulating the activity there, but what are these, uh, what are these uh, channels doing? So the light-driven ion pumps that were originally discovered between, let's say, 1971, 1980 or so, um, they convert solar energy into an ion gradient. So light-driven proton pumps will pump protons um, to, from one side of the membrane to the other, and that then is used to power the production of ATP. So in our own mitochondria, it's a proton gradient that then drives this ATPase that makes ATP. So we're not so different from these single-celled microbes, I guess, in that regard. <laughs> Um, except that we have to eat in order to get the energy to do that, and these organisms just take sunlight and convert it to the proton gradient. And then around the turn of the millennium, light-driven ion channels were found. So channels, of course, cannot store energy. They'll dissipate energy as they let ions go down a gradient governed by concentration and voltage, mm -hmm. and maybe a few other things, but those are the main things. Um, and, uh, and so single-celled algae, and now an increasing number of other critters, have been found that use these molecules to sense light um, that then control downstream uh, sensory-related uh, processes that are not used directly for the storage of energy. So single-celled single algae might use these to navigate around in a body of water, and then um, then they use their chloroplasts to photosynthesize. So, I mean, um, you, you've mentioned that one of the interesting aspects of, uh, you know, trying to get this into neurons to manipulate activity was that it was kind of lucky that it worked because you needed like certain properties to be existing in the cell for for that to happen so what are some of the serendipitous like aspects of applying that technology that you found like kind of early on in that process yeah so though the this n feronis halorodopsin was the first one that we collected the first one that we actually tried was um chenorodopsin 2 from a green algae species um clemidomonas um, and Hartier, uh, and yeah, we put the gene into neurons and then uh, shined blue light on it. And basically, the first neuron that I tried was driven by light, so just the right safety profile, the right speed, and the right amplitude of effect. But maybe most remarkable, um, you know, these opsins require a vitamin A relative all transretinal to function, 
And mammalian neurons had that um, for reasons that I don't think anybody really still understands. Um, it's not true in all organisms. Some organisms, like small invertebrates especially, you have to feed them the retinal, and then the opsin will function. So there's some or model organisms where like you can't just inject this stuff and get it to express. You actually have to you actually have to feed them the stuff in their food in order to get yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you could get the protein to express, but it, without the the vitamin A relative, it's sort of in a dead form. So okay. like worms, like C. elegans, you feed them Ultrans retinal um, and uh, that that uh, enables the function of the protein. Um, yeah. But oh, for whatever reason, new. mammalian neurons didn't need that. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm just saying I, I learned something new. It's amazing. It's, yeah. It's really cool. So it's just sheer luck that mammalian neurons had that because I, <laughs> I wonder if people would have the appetite to put a lot of this fairly expensive chemical in, in your burgers. a large mouse brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, it seems like the um, the whole developmental process, it, it required you to kind of step outside your immediate area of expertise, like researching these sort of... Um, <coughs> Uh, you know, products from other species. Uh, you know, it seems like highly interdisciplinary. Are there parallels between that and other technologies that you've had to develop, where you you see you identify the problem early on, and you really have to kind of like scour the the you know other worlds of chemistry and physics and stuff to really understand that? I'm thinking, you know, kind of like expansion microscopy, where where there developments early on in you know, expanding polymers and stuff that you found particularly inspiring or how do you go about that sort of that, that, that step from having a problem and wanting to solve it to like seeking out the actual implementation of it? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the really big problems in biology are, are kind of, kind of obvious at a high level. And then the question then is how do you solve it at a low level where the implementation details matter? Um, so in general, we want to see everything in biology and control everything in biology, right? You think about PCR or next-gen sequencing or, you know, there are ways of measuring the genome, basically, right? And then CRISPR is a way of editing it. So, um, but then how do you go about ha ha making it happen, I guess? And there, there's some, I think, principles, right? Um, one is simplicity. You know, CRISPR wasn't the first genome editing reagent. Expansion microscopy wasn't the first nanoimaging method. Um, Optogenetics wasn't the first method of controlling you know, neural activity with light, frankly. Um, but in each case, the simplest and easiest to use way of doing it was the most robust and the one that, that has had the, the fastest growth rate. Um, so simplicity, I think, is really important. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of, of the principles that these are based on are chemical principles, often informed by computational thinking and implemented through physical means. So having... I think a uh, toolbox with chemistry, physics, and um, computer science is helpful. You know, CRISPR is sort of digital genome editing, right? Optogenetics is, you know, solar panels for neurons and things like that. So there's like a, an engineering way of thinking about each thing, but you're implementing it through chemistry. And so, yeah, a lot of it is, I think, having the right concept in mind and then thinking about what are approaches that can, can come in handy. In the case of expansion microscopy, yeah, one of the key... Um, early papers is this 1980 paper um, from the Tanaka lab. Tanaka was an MIT professor, although he died relatively young uh, of a heart attack, unfortunately, so I never got to meet him. Um, and he uh, pioneered the study of so-called spart gels or responsive polymers, and they're widely used for drug delivery and culturing cells and all sorts of stuff. And, and so uh, this 1980 paper from him was one of the, the key 
inspiration is for expansion because he showed that you could take sodium polyacrylate or other swallowable polymers and cause these very, very rapid changes in volume. And then he could explain the physics in a way that seemed to us like, hey, maybe this is well-behaved physics that could be used to expand things in a, in a controlled fashion. So, I mean, when we talked last time, um, the one of the, the sort of like really obvious uh, applications of expansion microscopy was that it kind of circumvents a lot of the limitations of super resolution imaging. So you don't need to have the crazy system, like crazy expensive specialized system for doing uh, super resolution. You can just make your tissue bigger. Um, one thing that really struck me about your talk today was that a lot of the other benefits of expansion microscopy are still being discovered or still being implemented like over the last five years. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, combining expansion microscopy with sort of like in situ hybridization approaches and what that is sort of like able to reveal to neuroscientists that beyond just the simple structure of, you know, the nervous system at the nanoscale. Sure. Yeah, so one of the beauties of expansion microscopy is that since it's a fairly simple procedure, lots of people are hacking it for their own purposes. You know, a group at Stanford showed that by adding one enzyme, they could expand bacteria by softening bacterial cell walls. Um, there's a group in Europe that's been, uh, 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 you know, uh, essentially expanding single molecules and trying to look at different parts of it and so forth. So it's a very extensible technology because it's based on fairly simple underlying chemi chemistries. Um, yeah, in terms of um, uh, the kinds of uh, things that we are doing now, I mean, one goal would be to see if expansion could be a platform for seeing, you know, essentially everything. You know, by decrowding proteins and biomolecules such as DNA and RNA and sugars and lipids and so forth from each other, uh, you make it so that, you know, you surround each biomolecule by a you know, test tube-like environment of your choosing. And so you could run all sorts of sequencing and other chemistries there. And uh, yeah, a year ago, we did show that we could adapt the in-situ sequencing strategy um, into expanded brains and also human cancer biopsies and so forth. And, um, and now many people, of course, are bringing in different enzymatic and non-enzymatic amplification and analysis schemes into expanded Samples taking advantage of the decrowding, which gives you, you know, access for complex chemistries to biomolecules, in order to facilitate, uh, you know, multimodal, multiplexed interrogation in 3D with nanoscale precision, and ideally without requiring any expensive hardware. So you you talked a little bit about uh, how this expansion is sort of, um, you know, allowing you access to to different thing, um, different complexes that we wouldn't have had access to before. Was that something that was expected, or is that sort of a um, a nice benefit that, that sort of fell out of this, um, this sort of pursuit of expanding samples? Actually, if I think back to the original discussions we had in the lab about expansion mm -hmm. back in 2007, the decrowding was the original motivation. Because at the time, we didn't understand how difficult super-resolution microscopy was. So mm -hmm. the way I was thinking about it at the time was, oh, super-resolution is a way of doing nanoscale imaging, but mm -hmm. how can you label all the stuff? How can you distinguish all the stuff. Because in light microscopy, you're not seeing the molecule, you're seeing the label attached to the molecule as a rule. Yeah. And so that was my original motivation when we started brainstorming about it in 2007. Um, but then when, uh, yeah, Faye Chen and Paul Tilburg started doing nanoimaging in the group, then we also realized, wow, nanoimaging is actually really difficult and it's expensive and slow. And, and, and so, uh, yeah, so then we started uh, really thinking of this idea of democratizing nanoimaging. 
And I guess one of the other limitations that your sort of your group is pursuing is um, the limitation of of knowing what you're looking for, right? And so uh, one of the new things that you've developed is this uh, expansion sequencing. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and what the advantages of that are over the normal in situ hybridization approaches? Sure. Yeah. So if you want to see everything, like thousands and thousands of different things, then you need some kind of trick, right? You can't bring in a thousand stains because there are not enough colors. You can't do a thousand cycles of staining imaging because that's going to take a long time, a thousand times longer than a normal experiment. And so what we and many other people have been doing are coming up with sort of exponentially scaling coding strategies um, where in a linear number of steps, you could read out an exponentially greater number of things. Um, so some of the early ones included, you know, like Zhao Wei Zhuang developed Murfish. But basically there's some kind of code that you apply. And then the way digital code works is if you have a string of 10 zeros and ones, then there's two to the 10th power or about a thousand different possible strings of zeros and ones that are 10 digits long. So, so basically, you know, is there a way to um, apply this kind of barcodings to give you exponential decoding out of a linear number of steps? And so for in-situ sequencing, we add a barcode that's attached to a hybridization probe and the barcode then can be sequenced. And so you have four bases. Um, you know, if you have um, A, T, C, and G, and there's, you know, five of them in a row, four to the fifth power is what, a thousand roughly. Mm -hmm. uh, so you should be able to distinguish a thousand different things. And so, and we had a paper last year collaborating with uh, groups like Aviv Regev's group and George Church's group and others where we showed that we could yeah, image in expanded specimens, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of different RNA species. And so you, you've given examples um, using expansion microscopy also in sort of like a clinical setting like or, or with like clinical applications, for instance, um, this decrowding problem in the context of diseases where crowding is a real big issue, like in Alzheimer's disease, the development of plaques and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, also in sort of like um, pathological analysis of, of cancerous cells. How do projects like that come about, like collaborating with, you know, more specialized groups um, and that sort of thing? And, and what are some of the surprising things you've found pursuing those avenues of research? Yeah, the collaborations start any which way. Sometimes we get approached by a clinician, sometimes we reach out to a clinician, sometimes a basic scientist approaches us, sometimes we approach them. But yeah, we've had a number of these now where, um, and sometimes we just kick the technology over the fence that people apply it on their own, which is how the blindness treatment uh, with optogenetics came about. We discovered this molecule crimson, a European team headed by Bolton Ruska and Jose Alain Sahel, and showed last year in a Nature Medicine paper that they could restore partial functional vision, but perhaps the best restoration of vision for this particular disease that at least I've known of to date uh, by expressing crimson in this person's eye. Um, and he could make out you know, the shapes of objects and household objects and recognize lines of a crosswalk and that kind of thing. But yeah, for expansion microscopy, um, we've had several examples where you know, we collaborate with a tumor biologist to see if we can detect cancer earlier than before or we can collaborate with a, uh, a neurosurgeon to see if we can analyze brain cancer with more accuracy than before, or with a basic scientist who studies animal models of neurodegeneration in order to see if we can discover where, you know, presumably uh, toxic proteins or proteins at least hypothesized to be involved with the pathology, you know, where are they located? And yeah, with expansion, because, you know, in the end, I think biology is about nanoscale things that interact over nanoscale distances. Um, we find surprises all the time, you know, because it's like we're now finally imaging the biological system with the resolution at which the actual building blocks occur. Right. And so we found um, 
uh, amyloid plaques and ge geometries and locations that they haven't been described before. Um, you know, we, we've been finding that uh, cancer cells might be undercounted because maybe the traditional staining methods don't quite access all the cells um, that they should. Um, yeah, we had a paper a couple years ago on early detection of uh, breast cancer at a point at which doctors disagree half the time, but by expanding, you can take the small changes that occur early in the disease and literally make them visible. And so, um, so we showed we could train a simple machine learning algorithm to do better classification of early stages of cancer. The, if you really try to democratize a technology and to make it easy to use, then the chance of finding something important goes up because again, a lot of biology is luck, but you can optimize your luck by increasing the number of shots on goal or increasing the accuracy yeah. of each shot on goal or, um, or uh, helping people from different backgrounds and uh, to get into the game and try it out. That's really cool. I mean, one one of the um, uh, the other like really mind blowing things that I saw today in your talk was <coughs> taking new approaches for developing biosensors, such as like robotic directed evolution of these things. Can you explain a little bit about? how you would take something like wanting to have like a, a really uh, well-localized membrane-bound voltage sensor but that's very bright and uh, using robots to basically help develop that sort of thing. How did, how did you go about doing that? Well, so again, just as with expansion microscopy and the other strategies that we've been talking about, you know, it often started with um, trying to understand the problem at a deeper level, right? And so when we started the project, we actually were thinking about methods like microfluidics. You know, could we sort cells and pick out cells that had mutants that are better for a given purpose and get rid of the cells with mutants that are worse for a, diff for a different purpose? And so that's how directed evolution works, right? You take a gene and make many mutants, and for any given goal, some are better and some are worse, and you want to pick the ones that are better. And so we did not invent directed evolution. Um, you know, people like Francis Arnold won a Nobel Prize for developing the field. Um, but uh, we really wanted to get it to work well in mammalian cells, which is not a traditional directed evolution host. And also we wanted to make the directed evolution multidimensional, because if you want a tool to be used by many people, it has to satisfy all their wants, right? It's got to be bright, it's got to be fast, it's got to be strong, it's got to be safe, it's got to be et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so in directed evolution, you kind of get what you look for. If you don't look for something, you might find that trait to disappear over time. Um, yeah, so... Um, Microfluidics uh, turned out to be much more finicky than we thought. So we ended up you know, trying to be, again, as simple as we could be. Simplicity, again, being a key principle here. And uh, the simplest thing we thought of is let's have a robotic arm suck up a cell if we liked it. And so we can take cells and culture them in a dish, put mutants in them, um, image them for these properties. And then if we see a cell with mutants that have good properties, have a suction arm, uh, take up a pet and apply negative pressure and pull the cell out. And that turned out to work really well. So what's the speed at which you can actually screen through, a, you know, a thousand mutants or something like that, or, or however many mutants you need before you, you really, what, what's the scope of like how many uh, screens are actually running with this system? Let's see. So right now we're actually rebuilding the system and improving it. So the current exact moment, I don't know if we're running any screens, but the original robot um, could screen through, let's say some thousands of cells per some number of hours. I mean, it always depends on how many things you're measuring, right? Right. So if I want to measure a bunch of parameters and it takes many seconds per cell, then I'm going to screen fewer cells than if I could screen a whole bunch of them and the assay is very quick. So, so that's what I'm giving you a range. But yeah, let's call it maybe some number of thousands of cells um, to tens of thousands of cells in some number of hours. 
depending upon what exactly you're looking for. Wow. And so um, what does that leave you with? So in the end, you have a, a new biosensor. What can you what can you use the product of that directive evolution for? Well, the first thing we made was a voltage indicator that we call Archon. And um, then we collaborated with Shohan's group at BU to show that we could actually use Archon to image population neural activity in awake-behaving mice. So at the time, we published this paper in fall 2019 in, in Nature. Um, at the time, I think people had only looked at two or three cells at once in an awake-behaving mouse. Um, Archon had very high signal-to-noise, very high dynamic range, very high delta-f over f, which is a change in fluorescence. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we could see a dozen cells, which might not sound like a lot, but you know, I, it's early days. There's obviously much more work to be done in voltage imaging, but already Archon's been used by in, in several studies to make discoveries about um, different cell types, their function in terms of you know responses to stimuli and so forth. And so it's, I think we're off to the races now. You know, we now live in an era where you have basically sensors for all sorts of processes at you know, at the cellular level, you have voltage sensors, you have calcium sensors, you have molecular sensors looking at things that are sort of intrinsic to signal transduction and plasticity and that sort of thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to come up with new ways to visualize multiple types of sensors simultaneously? So for instance, you know, here at MPFI, we're really, in, you know, one of our labs is really interested in developing um, molecular sensors for specific parts of you know, molecular cascades involved in, in synaptic plasticity and that sort of thing. We have a lot of people that are doing calcium imaging, and a lot of these things are sort of intertwined with each other. You know, calcium is a very uh, important, you know, signal for lots of different, uh, you know, processes within neurons. How have you been able to uh, take some of these biosensors and combine them in interesting ways to be able to visualize all these different processes simultaneously? Well, one strategy that we've been playing with is just parking different reporters in different parts of a cell. So a cell is pretty big compared to a reporter. So if you put different reporters in different parts of the cell, then each one can tell you a different story. It's like a house, right? Suppose you could only uh, have a house broadcast information by flicking the front porch light on or off. You would get very little information from the house. But if everybody can sit in a different room and talk on their cell phone, then many parts of the house can broadcast different information. And so that's the core idea. And so, yeah, what we found is that we could take different fluorescent indicators and fuse them to different self-assembling peptides, and they would spontaneously, stably, and safely cluster at different points in a cell. And that then allows us to, uh, to have a cell tell us many kinds of signal at once um, because they are coming from slightly different parts of the cell. So what is a self-assembling peptide? Like, what, why is it that these, these assemblies will congregate in different locations from each other if you have different ones? tagged to different types of biosensors. Self-assembling peptides, as the name might imply, just are peptides that, that will bind to themselves. And many people have designed them to form different shapes, like a, a virus-like icosahedron shape and so forth. And um, many protein engineers have used them as kind of a cool test case to show that their protein engineering strategy works. So we started wondering, what if we could express them in living cells? Could we use them to assemble things attached to them at defined points in space or random points in space. And yeah, they work. They can self-assemble in living cells. They seem to be quite stable. They're bioorthogonal, meaning that they're designed to have sequences different from those in the genome of the target organism. So they don't seem to interfere with any natural um, signaling processes or with cell health. 
And um, uh, yeah, we can take a bunch of different sensors, fuse in different self-assigned peptides that cluster in different shapes or at different scales and get them to stably form these, uh, these clusters. What are some of the combinations of different types of um, sensors that you guys have used? And then, um, you know, what are some of the interesting um, uh, observations that you've been able to make about these combinations of sensors? Well, I did my PhD in, on learning and memory uh, with Jennifer Raymond and Dick Chen, and we also thought a lot about calcium-dependent signaling. So the first thing that came to mind was, well, how do you take a fast signal like calcium and translate that to a long-term change like memory. And so uh, we took a couple off-the-shelf sensors for calcium and cyclic AMP and protein kinase A, all of which are implicated in, in certain forms of memory in different species. And um, and then just to do a test case, we gave the drug forskolin, which drives cyclic AMP production, and showed that we could then look at calcium and protein kinase A and, and relate them to each other. So, you know, if, if calcium is sort of one of the inputs to the system and kinases stay on enduringly. Um, we asked, could we relate you know, uh, a calcium transient to the amplitude of the final protein kinase A output? And we could. So in the end, we could show that the speed of calcium responses could be related to the amplitude of the protein kinase A output. And that was true both in cultured uh, hippocampal neurons as well as in um, acute brain slices uh, from, from, the, from the living mouse, uh, the, yeah, from uh, mouse brains that were expressing the the tools in, in the living state. And so, um, yeah, so it's very exciting to see that we actually could derive relationships between these different signals. And yeah, if we could try, if we could figure out how all these different signals inside of a cell talk to each other, I think that would be really, uh, really exciting insight into cellular computing. Are there aspects of the sensors that make them more amenable to this technique? Or, is, are, are, or are most of the sensors <laughs> that most people are using sort of uh, tailor-made for this? We just tried. Um, off-the-shelf sensors. We didn't modify them in any way. Uh, if I recall, about 80% of the times that we took an off-the-shelf sensor and fused it with one of our self-assembling peptides, uh, it would work. So you know, protein engineering is usually not thought of as very modular, right? Mm -hmm. But this is pretty modular. So um, yeah, it'd be very exciting just to take all of and, and since then, we have taken other sensors as well and, and tried them out, and they work as well. So we only have um, a few minutes left. Um, uh, you know, we we sort of have to wrap up here. But um, one thing that um, I saw recently, a, a collaboration between you and uh, Li Hui Sai's lab, um, looking at um, basically how different types of stimulation of the nervous system can, you know, play a role in helping to repair certain types of pathological circumstances. How, do, how does a collaboration like that develop where you have a, a, a lab that's interested in sort of like Alzheimer's models and, you know, the accumulation of, of plaques and that sort of thing, and then your area of expertise? Um, what are some of the interesting things that have been found through that collaboration? Is this a, a, a novel way of thinking about repairing the brain? And um, where do you see the, those sorts of approaches going in the future? Yeah, so this collaboration started... Um well, Li Wei had already on her own been using optogenetics to drive different neurons um, and had discovered this uh, 40 hertz resonance of parvobubin positive interneurons um, through optogenetics. And others have seen this through pharmacology and model it using computational modeling. Um, but I think her study was perhaps the first to show that directly driving this neuron class could engage that resonance um, in, in, a, in a direct drive fashion. And then, um, uh, 
yeah, uh, Annabelle Singer, a postdoc in my group, and Hannah Iacarino, a grad student in her group, started working together on this Gamma Alzheimer's project. Um, and they ended up being co-first authors of a paper in, in Nature in 2016, which showed that, <coughs> that, um, <coughs> sorry. I should have a button here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the cough button. Yeah, so they um, showed that uh, in mice engineered to get Alzheimer's-like symptoms, that driving these neurons 40 times a second could clean up the Alzheimer's pathology. And of course, optogenetics requires implants and gene therapies. So the next question became, can you do this non-invasively? And Emery Brown, a computational neuroscientist who's also an expert on brain rhythms, amongst other things, um, uh, was also a part of the collaboration and, and made suggestions that pointed to basically using a movie. You know, show the mouse a flickering light, play a clicking sound. No optogenetics anymore. And so now we've um, um, had multiple clinical trials, including a, some large-scale ones that we're um, hopefully launching soon out of a company we started to do large-scale trials because um, uh, we need a certain scale if we're going to get something for the FDA um, that I think exceeds what an academic group can do. Um, and yeah, so actual Alzheimer's patients are watching flickering lights and hearing clicking sounds. and. <clears throat> There's a preprint on MedArchive, and then also a paper from Annabelle's group. She's now a professor at Georgia Tech, and and then also the company's pursuing its trials as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it points to the possibility of some kind of benefit. That's really cool. I mean, I think it really highlights the range of um, of applications that a lot of a lot of these uh, discoveries can <laughs> sort of like take shape with. So um, thank you so much for, for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate you coming back to talk with us and uh, we'll, we'll see you next time you're here. Great. Have a great day. Great good to you be too. here. Great to see you. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast. 